Okay, well, let's uh, open in prayer and we'll jump into our time. Father, thank you so much for this fellowship coming together and uh, the brothers and sisters to uh, enjoy a time of being built up into your word, a good time of singing, worship, and also fellowship and food. And so I pray this morning that our hearts will be uh, encouraged by the good news that your word describes and help us to understand the simplicity of it, but also the complexities of things. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. This morning we're going to go on a little, <clears throat> little journey, I think. We've covered the gospel in various books so far because that's what we want to do is lay a foundation down. For ourselves. This morning I want to talk a little bit about, I've mentioned how the devil fits into this scheme, like what is his, what is his part to play. And this morning we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Look at 1 John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5, chapter 1 of 1 John. The We've talked a lot about salvation in respect to the love of God being the problem, right? In other words, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son. So we've talked a lot about that so that you would understand it. And it's so very, very important that you understand that God's integrity being in question was really the for, first and foremost thing to be concerned about. Because if God doesn't rectify the situation of killing someone for humanity, he falls into sin. And so this is what we've looked at from Romans chapter 3 and from all the text. And you see that again in John 3.16, the problem-solution passage where God so loved the world. Okay, why is his love the problem that results in him killing his son? Right? So that if you believe that his love is the problem and his son's death was the solution, that you will not perish but have everlasting life, right? You'll get out of hell and you'll get into heaven. And so we looked at that extensively, and that's important, and that will come up a little bit today as well. But there's the other side of it, obviously, which is our sin. And we've also looked at Romans 10, 9, and 10, and we confess him as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Shall be saved. This text takes it from a little different angle, where it speaks not of confessing him as Lord, even though that is true and does establish that in this book. It starts off with us uh, having to recognize something because someone might say that they don't have sin. In fact, in, in the book of um, John, did they not proclaim that? We're not sinners among the Gentiles, right? And so some Jews and some people at that time might think they had ascended and had um, rid themselves from sin. The problem is, unless you're glowing, that would indicate that you are, in fact, fallen, right? You have to be glowing with the glory of God to demonstrate purity and perfectness, right? And so, verse 5, he starts off with that point. This is the message we have heard from the beginning, or from him, and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's the same thing James says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. 
And so the point he's going to make now is why that's relevant is because people who are fallen are not pure light like God is. And so he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, right? It's pretty simple because darkness is a way of light. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so he says this twice. That's true. If we walk in the light, himself is in the light. This is a lot of the discussion, the way John would talk, uh, the Holy Spirit through John would talk in the, in the Gospel of John. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is believing, right? Faithful means believing. It's the same Greek word, faithful and belief. God believes and he is faithful and righteous or believing and righteous to forgive our sins, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it never says to ask for forgiveness here. People will go to this, this passage and say, God, you should just ask for forgiveness. No, he doesn't say ask for forgiveness. So confess your error. Now this is a salvation issue because the result of it is what? To be cleansed of all unrighteousness and be completely forgiven of your sins. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so we get this issue of sin, right? Where we are in a state and it's very difficult for humanity to understand the depths of this unless you're like, on a desert island, it's like the Lord of the Flies, right? We have to survive. And you see that in books and in history where men are taken out of social constructs of law and they're put into islands. There are many uh, records of this concerning early days of, of shipping and coming to the um, Americas and people colonizing islands and how all of a sudden the island would be have people and men and women and it would be one man with... 15 women at the end, right? In other words, left without law and construct, men devour themselves, women devour themselves. This is what happens. Because by nature, we're fallen into sin. Now, can men do good? Yes, can people do good? Absolutely. They can do good among men. That doesn't say people can give to someone, help them, you know, with the things that they have in their life, they can care for them, they can, they can serve them, they can encourage them, they can do philanthropic things, they can go over the ocean and deliver packages of food and, and help. And these are fallen people that don't know the Lord, right? So people can do good among men, but not before God. So look at Romans 3. Verses 9 through 18. Again, a presuppositional truth, right? What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged or made a statement that both the Jews and the Greeks are all under sin. 
Let's just say you're born from Adam, you're born into sin. Simple as that. Romans 5 explains the whole transaction. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. You say, but I thought we could do righteous stuff. We can't among men. But if the motive isn't from heaven, if it isn't from God, if it is in relating to God and his son, Jesus Christ, then even though it may look right and look good, it's not good or it's not right. Not because God isn't... Uh, in fact, God will reward righteousness and goodness from a human standpoint on the earth, among men, right? Just the Proverbs will tell you that, but not eternally, right? So there's temporal blessing, there's temporal reward for even fallen people who do good things, right? And, but as far as God's concerned, before him, there's no one righteous, no one can do, no one is in a position of righteousness. There's none who understands. Why is that? Because the natural mind, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you will figure that one out. No one understands unless God draws a man, right? No man comes to me unless the Father sent me, draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. God has to help a person come to understand. Apart from the Word of God and the, and the Holy Spirit and the leading of, of Christ and the Father, people don't understand. None seeks for God. Right? None seeks for God. Remember the verse that says, if you seek him, or rather be sought by him. God's the one who draws. Apart from God drawing, a man doesn't seek him. People like to think they do. No, they seek a form of God. They seek a Barbadol version, what I call the Barbadol Dreamhouse version of God. You know, where you make him up and you dress him up and you, you, he becomes your little denominational religious expression. But, but as far as that... That's very different than actually seeking God. Selflessly, empty of your presuppositions, empty of what you, your ideas are. Just seeking him for who he is. Seeking to understand him. This is true whether we believe it or not. It's just, I'm just going to point it out to you. Uh, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. That's true. Mankind, apart from God and apart from salvation, is turned aside and become useless. You say, well, we're very useful amongst ourselves. Yes, we are. Men go to work. They provide for their families. They love their kids. They go play golf ball. They play their baseball. They do their soccer thing. People do what they do, and they have fun, and they do music, and they celebrate, and they have birthdays, and they have all kinds of wonderful things. But before God, men are, in fact, useless. In fact, he says, there is none who, is, who does good. Up above it says, there, there is none righteous. Here it says, there is none who even does good. I thought, man, that's pretty rough. Again, he's not saying before men. Of course men do good before men. It's that you can substantiate throughout the scriptures. That's not the, even, even he told Cain, if you do what's right, won't your heart be lifted up, right? So people can do good amongst men, but not before God. There's not even one who does good. Their throat is an open grave. If you don't believe it, just look at history. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. They don't mean to, I think, mostly. Some people do mean to deceive, but most of us, I always said, uh, when you get, before you're saved, you're a liar. Everything you believe is a lie up until the point of salvation because the foundation is wrong. Not that the information necessarily is wrong. Two plus two is four, but why? It didn't just come out of nowhere. God, God created the world with order and with 
on the basis of physics and mathematics and science, right? Science comes from him. And so a deception is to say it doesn't. And in our day, deception is to say that two plus two isn't four. <laughs> we live in the absurdity time where the, where the uh, inmates are ruling the asylum right now, right? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're well past even this discussion in, in some arenas of our society. He says, uh, the poison of snakes or asps is on their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's true. Their feet is, are swift to shed blood. Look at history. In the last even 100 years, 150 years, probably been the bloodiest 150 years of history, the history of mankind. You just take Russia, Germany, and China alone. 50 million from Russia, was it probably 20 million from Germany? You have 100 million from China, murdering their own people. Um, it, that's unthinkable numbers. You think of a, a, a stadium that might have 100,000 people, and you see it, and you're like, whoa, that's an amazing amount of people. Now take that, and then just imagine 100 million people, right? How many stadiums would it take to fill up 100 million people? That's, it's, un, it's unheard of. Anybody who doubts the validity of these statements doesn't know history very well. History tells the truth about where men will go in their absurdity to, to play house, because that's all it is. It's playing house. Rulers who want to play house. It's like the little kid in kindergarten who comes in and says, okay, I want to play a game. You be the butler and you be my brother and you be the sister and we're going to play this. And they're like, no, I don't want to. They're like, I want you to play. You know, little dictators that will murder you, right? It starts at birth. You see it in little children. They're all dictators. We all have a bit of that Hitler in us, of that, that Mao, that Stalin, because that's part of the fallen nature. You have to work your way out of it. That's why we get upset when someone doesn't do what we want them to do because it's inconveniencing my play, my life. And therefore, I want them to play my game. And so it's like uh, recognizing these little things. I get all bummed about it. It's like, hmm, that's a very interesting con contemplation. And they are. They're very interesting. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Verse 16, in the path of peace they have not known. And most importantly, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, the truth of that is seen in this. Most people would say, I, I think this from my experience, and I say this from my experience, that is a truth, but from my experience. Most people like to say that, oh, I, I fear God. Or I, in, I, if, if God would would come and talk to me, then I would relate to him accurately. You realize that before the flood, God was the pastor of the earth? Who did they bring sacrifices to? God. Who did Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to? God. Who did the people after them bring sacrifices to? Bring worship and praise to? God. In person, on the earth. And you know what happened? Cain killed his brother. The earth got so bad, he had to flood the whole thing. And he was the person on earth. You'll figure that. So that tells you something, not to get bummed, but just to look at it intellectually and say, wow, that's a very interesting contemplation. It's true. The earth was so bad with God on earth that 
he had to flood it. So God's presence doesn't mean anything to the fallen person. They can fake it a lot better and they can have a better, it's, 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 it's really a mercy God doesn't show up against a fallen humanity because if they can fake him, it keeps them more civil. If they can have a fake personification of him, then they just fight for their version of him. So this, this is what we're saved from. He says, confess our sins. My, my kids weren't raised like I was. They weren't raised as a uh, <laughs> gutter rat, squashed cabbage leaf in the garden of men, you know, as I was, a little rambling sinner, um, uh, and not raised in any kind of religion or Christianity. My, my kids are raised with the gospel. They could explain the gospel when they were four or five years old and articulate it. And many of them. And so they don't understand the depths of their own sin, right? They will only understand it as they grow and mature and develop as children of God and then have to battle against their flesh and they'll see little flashes of selfishness and, and, and victorial behavior and, and uh, anger and frustrations and, and all these types of things. But, but most of them, Lord willing, will never face deep, dark, acts of sin and end up in prison or do horrible things and wreck people's lives. Um, and so, as he said, I, I've always prayed God help them to at least intellectually understand the fallenness of humanity. And us here in America, where we live in a first world country where we don't have a third world mentality where people just kill their neighbor and bury them, throw them in the river, right? It's very common in a third world country. John just comes up missing because him and Bob get in an argument and uh, he's thrown into the river and the alligators have dinner, right? You never see him again. So in third world countries, they kind of know who they are, right? Their sins aren't as civil. They're not as refined um, and, uh, and people are a little bit more violent. The more primitive you get, the more violent historically uh, things get because there's less law governing the parameters. And so you can see that you are, in fact, a sinner, right? You're a sinner. And so when God saves us, he's obviously saving us from our sins, even if you don't really feel like you really needed to be saved that much. It's important to understand that when you're, when you're coming to God, salvation just isn't saying, I believe you as Lord. Salvation is you believing in your heart that you are in fact in a state of sin and without God's glory and thus need him to remedy that situation, right? Of which he does, and he does it in magnificent, glorious fashion. In fact, look now, go back to 1 John. Look at chapter 3. sake of um, <clears throat> we'll look at uh, 29 chapter 2 verse 29 sorry there uh, 
So this is where the, the discussion starts. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is what? Born of him. Born of him. Right. If you do righteousness, it's because you're born of him. Because no one is righteous, no, not one. So if you actually do righteousness from the place of the new covenant and from the place of a relationship with God, it's because you do, in fact, know him. You're born of him. And it says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And what? Such we are. The question is not, are we, but do you believe it? This is where it comes down to it, right? The daily walk comes down to identifying with him as a father and me as his child. If he's righteous, then I'm righteous as he is. If he's pure, I'm pure as he is because I'm born from him. Right? And it says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. What part of us does the world not know? Because my flesh looks very much like the world, doesn't it? Is it glowing? Is it radiant? Is my body any different really than the world's bodies? No. It's the child of God. And who's the child of God? Your spirit. Your spirit, your inner man, your new creation, right? Your new creation. The world doesn't know us because our inner man is different. It longs for different longings. The law is written on the heart. The love of God's poured out into the heart. And we long for God. We have a wellspring of life bubbling up from within. And so if you just live normal and you don't even have the scriptures, you will by nature, you will by nature live out righteousness and love. It won't be pretty, but you'll do it. And this is what Romans chapter two talks about, that by nature, they did the things of the law instinctively before the law even existed. Verse two, beloved, we know, or now we are children of God and has not, been appear, has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's to say, right now, we glow like him. Those whom he justified, he sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he glorified. glorified. Romans 8, right? We've already been glorified. We lacked his glory. Now we have his glory. That's the point. Unlike the, the Moses, the face of Moses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which faded from the glory of God, our glory remains because God has made us new from his own nature. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Set yourself apart. Now, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Pretty simple. <laughs> Whether you know it or not, sin is lawlessness. In other words, you can go to a different country and you won't know the laws. But you, you'll sin, you'll break a law without knowing you're breaking a law. And it's still breaking a law, even though you don't know you're breaking the law. Still breaking the law. So sin is lawlessness. The simple deduction. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Got it. He appeared to take away sins. Again, do you believe that? You believe that he actually did take away your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and salvation. 
through an act of new birth. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. What is that talking about? Verse 6. What part of us could possibly be the part that cannot sin? The spirit. Because the, the body's still fallen. You know why the body's fallen? You know how you know? Not only because the word of God calls it a body of death, but because it's going to die. It's going to die. And, be, and thus have to be remade. No one who sins, seen or knows it. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous in the exact same way, that's what just as means, as he, that is Christ, is righteous. Do you believe that? If you do righteousness, the word practice is the word do. Righteousness is righteous. Do you believe you're righteous in the exact same way that God and Christ are righteous? That's what it says. And then it, it gets even better. And then we're going to focus in on this here in a moment. The one who practices sins of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. Before we get to that, we're going to go back to that. We're going to talk about that ex hopefully extensively this morning. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. Because he is what? Born of God. Now we get back to 2.28, right? Now we're back to the same. In other words, a person who's born from God cannot sin. It says it's spiritually. Obviously, our flesh is a sinful flesh and sins often. We're supposed, that's the whole point, is stopping it from sinning and presenting it alive and holy, though it is neither alive nor holy, which is what Romans 12 talks about, right? You present your body. So you are not your body in the text, right? So he's talking to someone other than your body for you to control your body. You present your body. That means you're not your body, and now you're supposed to divide out and control the body and present it as living and holy, though it is called a body of death and a body of sin. So it is neither living nor holy, but you're supposed to present it living and holy. Why? Because inside you are, in fact, living and holy. That's the walk of the new newness of life. That's what it means to walk in newness of life. That you present your body. I beat my body, I make it my slave. Right. In other words, I am different from my body. My body is not me. Your body is just a carcass. If it dies, my spirit pops out and then you see what he said in 1 John, you're glorious. You see him, you'll be like him because you'll see him just as he is. There's nothing left to be done except mature as a child of God. And so he says, the one born of God, uh, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, the word seed is important. There's two kinds of seed talked about in the Bible. One's in Peter. It's the word spora. It's the word for seed of a plant. This is the word sperm. Everybody know what that means? It's very important to understand. God's trying to communicate. We're of his DNA. We're of his DNA. That's why somebody asked me the other day, well, can you deny him? Can someone born of God's DNA who is sinless spiritually deny him? Does that even make sense? 
do people deny him who have confessed him? Yes. yes. Were they really born of God if they did deny him? No, because if you read chapter 2 of 1 John, he says they went out from us because they were not really of us, right? There are many pretenders. There are many false prophets. There are many false brethren. There's, you read throughout the scriptures, there are. That's the way it goes. So when you see someone who falls away, there's a reason why. It's not like some wonder, like, oh, I don't know. They served God for 10 years and they loved and whatnot, and then they fell away. It's like they fell away because they weren't born from above and they were enjoying a religious Barbie dog dream house. And once the Barbie doll dream house ceased to serve them, that is to say maybe they got disappointed, they don't like the minister anymore, they got caught in sin, they got booted out, whatever it is. Um, after the religion doesn't serve them anymore, then they move on to something else. And that can go on for a very long time. Very long time. That's why it's important to evaluate yourself to see if your faith is from your heart. Right? Do you really believe? That's what I'm always asking you. Do you believe it? Because we can all read this very easily. And we can even say we believe it intellectually. But do you stop and contemplate and say, I believe this from my heart? Like, I believe this from my heart. That means that no one can convince me of anything different because it says it right here. Right? That's why it says be steadfast, unmovable. Because this is a child's book. It's not hard to understand. It's, it's glorious and magnificent and amazing and radiant and fantastic and therefore it's difficult to believe. It's simple to believe. Like the, the words are simple. We see them right on the page. It's just a matter of whether we choose to believe it or not, right? So it's very important to, as um, Hebrews says, that their knowledge did not benefit them because it was not united with faith. They understood the truth of God. They didn't unite it with faith. Because it wasn't united with faith, therefore their knowledge didn't serve them. It didn't save them. It didn't bring you life. It didn't result in them being born from above. But now back up, I want to look at something. Because this will help us understand the sinfulness of the world a bit more and be a little bit of an interesting discussion, to say the least. All right, verse 8. We strolled right by it, and I, I want to talk about it because I, I talk about it all the time, but we've not taken time to dive into it. Verse 8 says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Why does he say that? Like, we're born of the devil? No, the devil's fallen, our, our flesh has fallen our, in, in before salvation, and your essence is, for his fallenness is the same as the devil's essence, and therefore you're of the devil. That is to say, he's the ruler over the fallen world. He has a kingdom, he is a ruler. He's called a god in a small g sense. Because anytime you represent yourself, and God allows you to represent uh, himself in a way, in a certain administrative area, you become a god. And it, Moses was called a god by God. Right? Go back to Exodus, and he says, you will be god to them, and Aaron will be your prophet. Why? Because anytime you speak for God, you become a God-positioned person. Right? Anytime you speak for God, you become in a God position. So that's why you have Psalm 82 and you have Exodus and all these discussions about, you know, you, uh, did, does it not say we, you are gods? Right? Going back to John. So this discussion is about the devil. 
It says, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's true. <laughs> he made an error. His error was he didn't trust God. And he puffed himself up with pride. And it says, the Son of God appeared to dis for this purpose. Great. What's the purpose? It's amazing he can sum it up into this. That's why I want you to understand this a little bit better. To destroy the works of the devil. It's easy to roll right over that, isn't it? And keep going. And not ask yourself about one word. What's the one word we need to understand? Huh? No? Works. What are his works? What does he do? What was his job? Why is he God of God? Why is he given authority? What the heck, man? Right? Like, who is this guy whom God dignifies? Like, really? Like, why is he here? Why doesn't God just take him on his little forehead and flick him and say, out, stupid idiot, right? Now, what purpose does he bring? Oh, he has works. What were his works? Well, they're magnificent to understand because it helps you understand the bigger picture. Now, with that being in mind, turn to Ezekiel 28. No. And I'm going to help you see it from Exodus this morning. So we're going to dig, dive nice and deep into this thing. It'll be easy to remember because it's Exodus 28 and Ezekiel 28. <laughs> In verse 11 of, of Ezekiel, we get a discussion about the king of Tyre. Of course, it switches as there are many messianic discussions text, this text particularly deals with the satanic version of the Old Testament where he'll be talking about Christ or the people of God and it talks about Christ. In this case, it's talking about a bad guy and it switches and talks about Satan because from my memory, the king of Tyre wasn't a holy cherub in the garden of God. <laughs> he, switches, he switches discussions, right? Verse 11 says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, Take up, a, uh, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, you have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone, and this is a very important statement, every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, notice there's nine the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold of the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. So he had a gold breastplate over his chest with nine stones. Now, it's important to understand what this breastplate is. Look at, look at Exodus 28. And we'll come back to Ezekiel, so keep a... Keep a finger in there. Hold that place. In Exodus 28, we learned something about the high priest. He had an ephod, but he, on top of the ephod, which the ephod sat on the shoulders primarily. That's in verse 4. But as you scroll down to verse 15, <coughs> there was an attached piece to the ephod. What does it say? You shall make a... What does it say? Read it. 
together. Breast piece of judgment. Ah, a breast piece of judgment. What does this breast piece look like? The work of the skilled workman, like the work of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square, folded double, and span in length, span the width, and blah, blah, blah. He says, you shall mount on it four rows of stones. Does that sound familiar? Four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. The second, turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. The third row, uh, jessinate. Je, uh, I can never get this one right. Jessinate. And uh, agate and amethyst. Fourth row is beryl, onyx, jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. Same as Satan. And it says the stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names. Blah, blah, blah. Right? Sons of Israel. You go on down to verse 29. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for memorial before the Lord continually. He says, um, verse 30, you shall put the breastplate of judgment, uh, the Urim and uh, Thummim, Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord, and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. And so it goes on. You attach it to the ephod with these rings. Now we go back to Ezekiel 28. So what did he describe Satan has on his chest, built into him? A breastplate of judgment. A breastplate of judgment. The breastplate of judgment represents the law and the judgment of the law. All right, The law only has one mission. What's the law do? Kill. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So the law's only mission was to condemn you and kill you. That's it. That's all the law could do. They could say, you failed, you die. Right? The heavenly law was much shorter than the law of Moses. The heavenly law was really just one page with a verse with one statement on it. If you sin, you die. <laughs> Very short, concise. Uh, the law of Moses allowed people to live. Right? You know, if you, your bull kills another dude's bull, you gotta pay him for the bull, blah, blah, blah. You know, this guy does this and punches you in the face, and you gotta, he gets punched in the face. All this stuff, right? So there, there are these accommodations that you could live, and you just kill an animal, right? You kill a turtle dove, you kill a sheep, you kill a, um, a lamb, you kill a, a bull. You, you would offer something to the Lord, and then that would, you know, pay for your, you know, you play the little game, and you play this little game that says, I'm paying for my sins, but it's accomplishing nothing. In fact, my sins aren't being paid for, but we're playing a game. And the game lasted 1,200 years called the, the, the Levitical Law. It didn't do anything. No sin was ever forgiven by the blood of animals, as Hebrews 10.1 said. So here we have Satan. He has work to do. What's his work? Why did he fall? 
Let's look at it. So in his chest, he has a breastplate of judgment. Identical, pretty much, except it has nine stones. Why does it have nine stones and not 12? What does that tongue speak of? He's not over the 12 tribes of Israel. He's over some angels in heaven. Right. He's over the nine realms of authority in heaven. There were 12 realms of authority in Israel. Thus, there were 12 stones. 12 tribes. Thus, 12 stones. In heaven, there must be nine. We know Michael is an archangel. We know Gabriel is an archangel. So, over the ruling angels, there were nine ruling angels, or at least we assume. Because he only has nine stones, therefore there must be nine realms of authority by which he was destined or determined to govern. And he governed according to law. His job was to implement law. It must have been a very boring job in heaven. Right? But then you have this interesting thing happen. God creates man, and he now has a new play toy. Someone interesting, someone he can see if they fall into his jurisdiction. See if they are going to, uh, to fall and he gets to kill them. As funny as it sounds, that's what he wants to do. He's a killer. Because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He's a killer. That's what he wants to do. That's his desire. He's the sentinel that stands there and will kill the person coming in if they break the law. Right? And so, you see those English dudes that are standing all the time, little horses, and, and they'll pop people, the horses will pop people or kick people. In other words, it just, the horses don't, they're trained to punish you. That's all they do. They're not trained, you don't touch them, you don't pet them, you don't talk to them. They'll pull people's hair and pull them to the ground. New York horses, will, what will they do? People go and slap them, what do they do? They're trained to kick. And that big, gigantic horse is trained to kick even the smallest of person which can kill them, but that's part of it. You do that, you're putting your life in your hands. Now, you see it all the time. People go out and do something stupid and smack the horse, and the horse just knows exactly where you are. And he kicks you. Well, Satan was made like that. He's the law. <laughs> He's the personification of the law. He's designed to represent the law. It says, on the day that you were created, they were prepared. So God prepared this, this breastplate of judgment into Satan when he was created. So he was created for a purpose. He was an archangel. He had a large angelic force. And it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Ah, who guards. The word covers or guards. He was the anointed cherub who guards the law. Because I placed you there. You were in the holy mountain of God. You, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You know how important they were. I don't, because I don't know what the stones of fire are, and I don't know one does, but it's a very interesting statement. <laughs> Always ask, all right, what were the stones of fire? Uh, we don't know. We'll figure it out one day. <coughs> Apparently it meant something. Uh, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Oh, until unrighteousness was found in you. Why was unrighteousness found in him? Verse 16. By the abundance of your trade. That's his job. By the greatness of his trade. That is to say, because of the greatness of his job, unrighteousness was found in him. 
It says, and you were internally filled with what? Violence. Violence. What does the law do? Kill. What does righteousness do? It fills you with violence. Love doesn't fill you with violence. Righteousness fills you with violence. Sometimes good violence. That is, say, internally, if you're angry against sin, God's wrath is storing up. Doesn't mean you act on it, it just means that you're inside you're upset. He was internally filled with violence, and then he did something, and then you sinned. Therefore I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering of cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. I really wish I knew what the stones of fire were. It'd be interesting. You got a, you got an idea? Got a, you got, I just got a question. Yeah. The word can pull up the the Hebrew of the word trade because mm-hmm. in the King James this is by the multitude of your merchandise. Yeah, his the trade with the original. Yeah, yeah, his 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 occupation basically what he does. In other words, his concept. You have the Hebrew there. Yeah, you can see that. Oh, that depends on if it gives you more than one definition. Where are you at? A top merchant yeah. trader, yeah, his occupation. One who buys and sells and barters and goods, yeah. It's a very simplistic problem with that is there's a lot of <coughs> meanings, but as I say, his occupation uh-huh. by his trade. So because of what he's supposed to do, as I say, if you think of it in terms of he's trading something, he's trading his when you make a move, you're doing something. Um, but we could look at that word a bit more extensively uh, later on. I'll do a little study on it for you if you want to know more. But um, the bottom line, it's what he does. What he was supposed to do was represent the breastplate of righteousness of judgment on his chest, and that's what he did. And he did that by going and messing around with Adam and Eve. Particularly the Eve, not Adam. And he found the weak link. She wasn't in the garden. She wasn't given the command not to eat of the fruit. That's why sin didn't enter the world through Eve. It entered the world through Adam. One man sinned. Eve didn't, wasn't given the command by God. Adam was given the command by God. So she ate the fruit. He deceived her into doing it. And Adam then, who knows what he was thinking. That's a dumb move. But maybe he thought to himself, well, she didn't lose her glory. Maybe I won't lose mine. I don't know. But whatever he was thinking, it was dumb. And once he sinned, now both of their glory faded. Not just her and his, but hers, his and hers, because the whole creation's glory faded, and now the whole world has plummeted into sin. Right? Yeah. Um, Did Satan fall before... He tempted Adam and Eve, or when he tempted Adam? No one knows, but my guess is, based upon the chronology of the logic of what's in the text, is he wouldn't have been in the garden where it was holy under the God, right? He was in the garden, we know, because God placed him there, and he kicked them all out after the sin, right? So he's a, he's there in the garden. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing, which is walking amongst the stone to fire and represent the law, and he begins to ask and, and chitter-chat, you know, with Eve. It doesn't say at that point, necessarily, that he's fallen. 
it, the logic of it would be he tempts he, he tempts her. And tempting isn't necessarily something that is inappropriate. God allows people to be tempted all the time. He even commissions it. Right? You go through the scriptures, he'll commission you to be tested. So the word temptation and the word test are the same word. That they don't mean anything different. So let's just say he tested her. He tested her. And she failed. It wasn't necessarily the... Um, he would be riding the line of acceptability. But he tested her and she failed. So at that point, the logic would be he goes up to God and says, now I get to kill him. Right? She failed, he failed, now I get to kill them. At that point is the point where all the angels have to pick sides. Because God is commissioned by the law to have to kill them because he said, if you eat the fruit, you die. But God chooses not to do it. He chooses to love him and pass over his sins and tolerate his sins, right? At that point, you have a very convincing argument that God is doing wrong. If God doesn't kill them, God now is potentially wrong for what he's doing. This is why God so loved the world that he had to kill his son. Because he wasn't wrong, because it's like saying, I can buy something at the store with my credit card, and though I'm not paying for it that day, technically I'm not paying for it. I pay for it 30 days later, right? So God did pay for the, the sins of man, but 4,000 years later, so he put on credit the sin of man. So technically he hadn't paid for it. He had the money. Nobody knew exactly what the money was and how it was going to be, how it was going to happen. The money was Jesus' death. The money was the blood of Jesus and his death, the resulting in his death. That was the money. And so he had the money to pay for the sin, but no one could figure that out. That's why it was a mystery. And so what you have is, remember the angels in 1 Peter longed to look into the word because they didn't understand? Satan was not given privy to God's plan. Michael was not given privy to God's plan. Gabriel was not given privy to God's plan. Nobody knew God's plan but God. That's it. Nobody knew. That means that Gabriel and Michael had a choice to make. And Satan did too. Do I believe God can get himself out of this mess? Right? That's the choice. Gabriel and Michael said, I do believe God can get out of this mess. And they did not fall into sin. That's the sin. It says he was puffed over pride and he, and he sinned. The sin was he didn't trust God because here's what God would have said. Even though it's not here, I know he would have said this. I got this. I've got it all figured out. I can, I can solve it. I've got a solution. Right? And then the angels would have had to say, I believe you, or I don't believe you, right? And so the angels had to believe first. And so Gabriel Michael believed. Satan didn't believe, and therefore he was puffed up with pride and wanted to exalt himself up there with God. Because ultimately, if he exalts himself up with God, he could solve God's problem and sort of fix heaven. Because God hadn't fallen into sin yet. He could clearly see God's glory hadn't faded. So in his mind, well, if I exalt myself up there to God and say, God, I got this. I'll do it my way. And I'll kill Adam and Eve. And therefore, fix the problem. 
You can congratulate me when I'm done. You know, <laughs> and God said, no, you're not going to kill them. I'm going to show them. I'm going to give them a promise. And that's what happens. Right? He comes down. He gives them a promise. He doesn't kill them. He says, yes, sin has entered the earth. There's curses and there's pain. They're going to be involved with that. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and his heel will be bruised. Right? So when you crush the serpent's head, if he bites you, when you crush his head, you die from the snake bite. And so the, the gospel was presented right there in, in Genesis chapter 3. And <coughs> so the, the order of things, if you were just take it logically, the order of the fall was propagated by the fact that God didn't explain how he was going to solve the problem of paying for a man's sins. Because if you think about logically, if he created another man to pay for that man's sins, then he's unrighteous for killing a righteous man who has to go to hell for an unrighteous man who goes to heaven, and there's two unrighteous acts. No one would have contemplated that God himself would get into a body, given that body the worth of all men, solving the problem of paying for all men's sins, which is unthinkable, right? And then solving the whole problem by putting him to death and condemning him to hell. He went to hell, but could hell hold him? No, hell could not, the grave could not hold him. And he burst forth from it, as the scripture says. And while he was down there, he had a little moment to preach to the angels in prison. And then he pops back up, he comes back up, and now God is, is, uh, is, is completely justified, he's completely righteous now for killing a man. He had to kill someone. He had to bring about the death of someone because he didn't kill Adam. But when he didn't kill Adam, he was destined to kill somebody. Somebody has to die. And that somebody has to be really unique. And Satan couldn't figure it out. Think of it this way. How do you convince a third of the angels that have lived in heaven and saw the integrity of God, the love of God, the creative um, perspicuity of God, all this, all this amazingness of God, right? This insight and this wonder. And Satan was able to convince one third of the angels to rebel. That's phenomenal. That's a, that's a crazy number. A third? Like, you would have to have a very convincing argument for, for the angels to rebel against the Creator. And he did have a very convincing argument. Because, logically speaking, they couldn't figure out how God was going to rectify it. Did you, did they ever believe that God would get into human flesh and bear the burden of sin and burst forth from the judgment? No, they would never think that. His job was judgment. He didn't think about love and, and, and purpose and, 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 and compassion. Satan's job was judgment. So he, didn't, he did not think that. And a third of the angels didn't think it, and that's to their folly. And not just a third of the angels, but then you have these series of fallen angels throughout the era, right? The, the ones that came down and had relations with the women in Noah's time. That was a second phase of fallen angels, 200. And then you had another phase throughout. So they were, they were dropping sort of like slowly throughout history. Right, the angels were until Jesus died and rose. And they're like, "Oh my goodness, did I make the wrong choice?" You know, we we I thought I thought it didn't really matter because God, if God's unrighteous and He can mess around by not killing Adam, then I can obviously do unrighteousness, and it won't matter either. But the problem is, their their glory faded, <laughs> and they were shocked. And so, what you have is a situation where based upon the only logical timeline, his fall would have been, because the, the temptation was in the, basically the earlier part of the day, the morning, 
and the the um, the discussion between God and Adam and Eve and Satan was in the evening. So the the fall of Satan would have logically been between the temptation and the failure of Adam and Eve, and God coming down to walk and and judge all three of them, and give a promise to Adam and Eve that He would in fact save them. And they believe that promise because in Genesis 4, 1, it says, I've gotten a man child, the Lord. It doesn't say with the help of it, it's in italics. Uh, it, it says the Lord. In other words, she actually believed that her firstborn child, child was Yahweh. I've gotten a man child, Yahweh. She thought Yahweh's born. He just said the seed of the woman is going to crush Satan's head. <coughs> Excuse me. She thought that that was going to happen immediately. And logically so. He doesn't give a timeline, Right? So uh, she thought that her firstborn was the son of God and he was actually the son of the devil and it was a terrible situation to be in. But <clears throat> that was the, that's the situation. So it's a good question. Uh, yes, Tanya. I just find it interesting that God in his creation, when he created the spiritual beings, they had a choice also. Yes. As well as when he created mankind, he gave us a choice. He, he, he creates man with the ability <clears throat> to be saved and he creates the angels with the ability to fall, right? But once they believed, my belief is, is he, he established them in righteousness to where now they're truly God's children and they couldn't fall the same way we can. I think believe faith was always the point. Believe him. This would have been the first test forever. <clears throat> Passing over the first sin. Yeah, the first test for literally the angels and men was faith. In, in Genesis. So that would be, that that was his job. He wore a breastplate of judgment. He was over the law. That's why Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, right? And it's also why, look at, let's say Ephesians, Ephesians um, 2, 11. Just a, a little stroll. You can look at the passages that speak to this. In Ephesians 2.11, it says that um, in following, therefore remember the former, formerly you were you the Gentiles in the flesh who are called in circumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from God, from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Very encouraging words. Um, <laughs> but that was the case of, of all of us. But now in Christ Jesus, you, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right, the death, right? There's the blood that brought us close. For he himself is our peace. He makes peace, right? Who made both groups, that is to say, Israel and the Gentiles, in, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What was the barrier, barrier of the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and God? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What's the enmity? What's the angry thing between us? Which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. So that in himself he might make the two one into one new man, that is, establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, 
having nailed it, or having uh, put to death the enmity. In other words, the power of the devil was, in fact, the law, because that was what gave him the power to kill, right? Look at Colossians. It says the same thing. Colossians, a few books over. Colossians chapter 2, particularly verses uh, 13 through 15. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he then made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Yes. How did he, why did he have the authority to forgive our transgressions? He had the authority to forgive them, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What is that? That's the law. This law which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Once Jesus died, he nailed the, the, the law of the cross. That means every sin that could ever be committed was nailed to the cross over Jesus. And once that happened, that means he paid legally for every sin that the law could ever represent. So, therefore, he paid for the price of sin. And then he says this. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Ah, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. God made a public display of them. Now, this is a pretty simple little text. What it says is he disarmed someone, right? He took away their, uh, their power, divested them. So what was the armament that Satan had in the text? The law. He had the law. Because he cancels the law, and the result of him canceling the law was him divesting or disarming Satan. That's why it says the rulers and authorities. That's obviously talking about the um, angelic rulers and authorities. He divested them. He disarmed them. The gun, if you will, of Satan was the law. The power of him was that. Sin. So because of his position, he loved the law. The old, the old psalm, you know, oh, how I love thy law, that was Satan's favorite one. Because his would have been translated a little differently from me. Oh, how I love thy law. It allows me to kill you day and night. Da 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 da, da you know. And um, he, he, was a, he was the church lady. I always call him the church lady. And he, he was the guy always hammering everybody. And what, thus, that's why he was the accuser of the brethren night and day. What did he, what was the basis of his authority to accuse? The law. The law was his power, and sin was what gave him the, the right to kill. But God said, but you can't kill unless I tell you you can. Unless there's a purpose. There's been a few purposes throughout history. Remember the 185,000 Assyrians, the plagues that hit Israel? <coughs> There were times when the death angel was cut loose. Remember all the firstborn of Egypt? There were times when he was like, I get to do my job. And he just cut loose and he did it. He's an expert. I had a question. Of the third of the angels that fell with Lucifer, uh, some of them went after strange flesh manifested and, and, and intermingled with the daughters of men. Some of them they were reserved for a place of eternal torment. 
how does which ones became in the realm of the spirit that became the demons that proliferate in our world right now? It's a it's a sub question. Well, now I'll answer it for you. In this in the book of in the book of jo, um, Joshua, he tells us to go read a book if we want to know more about this. It's the book of Yasher. And he explains this to them. Don't worry about this. Go to Yasher the prophet and read his writings. Now we have that book. It's called Jasher. It wasn't put in there because when the word of God was destroyed and Jeremiah rewrote it and all that stuff, they left it out. We have the streamlined version of the Old Testament. Technically, the Old Testament is probably hundreds of books. If you go through Chronicles and you go through First and Second Kings, you'll say to them, "Know more about this? Read the prophet such and such." We don't have any of those books. There's lots of quotes that we don't have the quote to it. Like, where did it come from? Like, he shall be called a Nazarene. Where's that from? We don't have the book. There's lots of books that were written that God left out of our version of the Bible because it simply, would, we didn't need it. In other words, when the, the Word of God was destroyed, Jeremiah rewrote it in the, the, our, the, um, the text, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the block script, the uh, uh, um, Babylonian block script Aramaic text that we have, we call Hebrew. It's not really Hebrew, it's, it's, it's block script Aramaic. Hebrew looks significantly different. Um, but uh, he didn't give us all the books, but we got a few of them from the Queen of Sheba in Ethiopia that popped up later. And one of them is that one. Now in Yashri he explains where demons come from. The fallen angels are in fact, you know, they have flesh, they can mate with a woman. That means they have sperm and they can actually impregnate people, right? And they're not like spirits floating around. They can take on a spiritual form, but primarily they're in their flesh. And they're here on the earth, and you probably see them and you don't even know you see them because they're in form. The demons, according to Yasher and Jubilees, were the spirits of the children of the fallen angels with women. Because he calls it, Jesus calls them unclean spirits. That is to say, unclean in the Bible was a mixture of two things that weren't supposed to be mixed. It was unclean. Mm -hmm. So when you mix two things that weren't supposed to be mixed, it became unclean. Now, a human and an angel was not supposed to be mixed. Therefore, the spirit is unclean. And no place in heaven or in, in, under the earth was, was given to them, he explains. That eventually they caused so much trouble, God did imprison 90% of the demons in hell, eventually, even though it wasn't his original plan. The hell was made for the devil and his angels, not the devil and his demons. The demons were a byproduct of the, of the, of the, of the giants, if you will, the spirit of the giants or the children, not all of them were giants, but the children of the fallen angels. The Nephilim, the Raphaim, the Seraphim, all those guys, right? So they then, Satan in the discussion in the book, talks about the fact that he asked God to leave him 10% because Noah and his children are being tormented by um, the demons. And so God hears Noah, he's going to incarcerate them all, and Satan makes an argument and says, well, I have work to do, and I'm going to need some of them. And God says, I'll give you 10%. And so he left 10% of the demons, thankfully only 10%, would be in a lot worse situation, um, on earth to facilitate the, the, um, the end time work of Satan. And so <coughs> that's where the demons come from, according to at least 
Yasher and Jubilees, which are in fact quoted in scripture and uh, seen as scripture before the uh, Babylonian captivity. Now, unfortunately, they're not, but they should be. And it'd be really nice if we had a really good old copy. Uh, we don't have a Hebrew copy. I think we only have a, an, an Ethiopian copy. And that's part of the, I think, reason people don't want to add it in because they don't know uh, if, it's, if it's as pure as it needs to be. But, uh, but all in all, it's a brilliant read. And I do recommend uh, listening to it or reading it. Hope that answers your question. Um, however, the first third fell apart from the next 200. The first third would be the ones that weren't incarcerated necessarily. The 200 that fell after that, which you see in the book of Enoch. Again, Enoch is a canonical book. It's quoted in the Bible as a canonical book in Jude. Um, again, we don't have the Hebrew copy, and I think that's why people stumble on it. But, but it's, it's, it's a very messianic book. And uh, it mentions, uh, it explains the story of the Nephilim because that was a separate fall. 200 angels fell apart from the third and came down and made a covenant on Mount um, Horeb. I think it was Mount Horeb, right? Huh? Her no. No, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. Mount Horeb is the mountain of God. Mount Hermon is, is uh, the mountain where they made the covenant. And then they did their thing. So that was, that's where that happened. That happened in the time of Jared. Because it says in the time of Jared, they learned to do what? Write. They learned education. The angels began to teach them educationally in the time of Jared in the Bible. And that matches up with Enoch, who also says in the time of Jared, the angels came down and taught them music and metallurgy and writing and language and reading and all that stuff, which is why it all exploded at that particular period of time in history. So a little bit of extra knowledge, but there you go. So anyway, so now you I hope you understand, you know, that this deal of like people think in terms of, oh, you know, God saved me. Like they think very simplistically about the work of God. God sent Jesus to destroy the works of the devil, to bring you new life, to uh, free you from his authority, right? Let's go back one page in Colossians and look at this beautiful, beautiful verse here in verse 13, 14, and 15. Or I say, 12, let's go 12, 13, 14, 15. Back up a minute. There you go. Says, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the holy ones in light, the saints in light. We're qualified to share in that inheritance because we're saints in light. It's good news, right? Says, for he rescued us from the domain, the domain, the authority of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Out of one kingdom into another kingdom. Out of one authority into another authority. Out of one king and ruler to another king and ruler. From one God, Satan, to another God, Christ. But Christ is the God. He's not a little g. He's a big g, whereas Satan is a little g. He's a simp. <laughs> 
Those who know that word will laugh, yes. <laughs> it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the, first, of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And so, there you go. Isn't that good news? God has freed us from an authority, an authority that was real. And by the way, the reason why, we didn't talk about this, but there's a final note. The reason why Satan was allowed to go up and back and forth to heaven after being fallen was because God couldn't demote him until he paid for the price of sin. Because technically Satan was right that God had not paid the price of sin. Satan was right by accusing the brethren. Satan was right by accusing God. But what he wasn't right about is that God couldn't solve it. What he wasn't right about is that though God bought the sins of man 4,000 years early, he was going to be able to pay it off 4,000 years later. And he wasn't right about that. And so he was... He was uh, if, if I buy something at the store right now with my credit card, somebody could accuse me and say, you didn't pay for that. You didn't pay for that. You didn't pay for that. And I'd say, yes, I didn't pay for that. Ha ha. You're stealing. It's wrong. How are you going to do it? I'm like, no, 30 days later, you pay for it or go home. I usually pay for it almost immediately, but you pay for it and it's done. Well, God had that too. The problem is Satan was only cast out, Revelation 12, he's only cast out of heaven after the ascension of Jesus Christ, Revelation 12 gives you the short story of Jesus. He came, the woman, they tried, Satan tried to kill him. He was born, he ascended. <laughs> it's, it's the short version of Jesus, Revelation 12. And then after he ascended, it says, Satan was cast down to the earth and his angels. Finally, Michael was able to war with him. In the old covenant, Michael had to say what? The Lord rebuke you. He didn't have any power over Satan. Because Satan was technically still in a position of authority. After the, after the ascension of Jesus, and Jesus cancels out sin and cancels out the law, Satan loses his power. He loses his authority. Now Michael can crack his knuckles and go kick Satan out. And it says that Satan was bound to the earth, and it was at that time that Satan could no longer, at the ascension of Jesus Christ, only after the ascension could... Could Satan be thrown down permanently? It says, woe to the earth for he's been thrown down to you. He can't go back up to heaven anymore. It says heaven rejoiced. Heaven rejoiced because Satan had been kicked out of that kingdom. Right? And that's why in Hebrews, it says heaven was cleansed. Heaven was cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The heavenly things are cleansed with much better sacrifices than these. Heaven itself was cleansed. Satan was there. And once Jesus died and that blood was offered there, then heaven was cleansed. And now the earth had to deal with Satan on a permanent basis. And he's not long, he no longer goes before God in heaven like he did with Peter, like he did with Job, and accuses the brethren. Because he has no authority to accuse us any, anymore. He can do it. It's just going to fall on deaf ears. There's, there's, no, there's no power in his, in his bark anymore. Doesn't he say he's a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to, to devour? Resist him and he will flee. Right? Resist him. Because he has no power. He can't bite. Satan, as 1 John 5 says, can't lay a finger on you. 
can't touch you, but in the Greek says, cannot lay a finger on you. Why? Because his power is gone. You are special. You're, his, you're God's children. Because of faith, you have victory and you've overcome the world. And so it's very good news. Uh, with that, we'll close. Any final question? Anything? <coughs> All right. Yep, Jeff? Quick question. At what point do you think chronologically Satan was cast down to earth uh, knowing that his time is short according to chapter 12 in the book but of it Revelation? It says when he ascended on high, right? So chapter 12, you have the chronology of Jesus being coming down. Satan tries to kill him through Herod, right? In the text there, this dragon tried to chase him and kill him. And then it says, and he went up to heaven. He was caught up to heaven, right? So based on the timeline in Revelation 12, when he was caught up, then the war between Satan and um, Michael took place, and Michael threw him to the earth. Okay. Yep. So the timeline is in the ascension. So it's basically Acts chapter 1 would have been when Michael was cut loose to throw Satan to the earth and, and, and fix him to the earth at that point, and no longer was he allowed in heaven, never again. And uh, going back to Colossians, it says he paraded him in heaven. He paraded him, or he made a public display. In the Greek, it means he led him in chains. And that means that he led Satan in chains through the streets of heaven with Christ as the vicar on the chariot, saying, this guy is defeated. And then he threw him down. So he would have been defeated. He would have been paraded as a defeated foe. And then he would have been thrown to the earth, according to the chronology of, of how Scripture describes it. And in that, we have victory, right? That's good stuff. Good news. Amen. All right. Lord, thank you so much for this time. I, I know it brings you glory, Father, to talk about the good work that you've done, the fact that you did, in fact, pay for sins, that you are, in fact, righteous and good and holy, that we can trust in you because we know that you're not just loving, but you're righteous, Thank you so very much for giving us the details and the data for us to look at and determine all the details of what you've done, to understand why Satan is even a part of this program so that we can no longer be intimidated by him and look to you for the victory. We're in your kingdom now, the kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ, to rule and reign with him, to be co-heirs with him and all the saints. Hallelujah. We give you thanks. Amen. Amen. Amen.